Our flawed assumptions get us into a world of trouble. Our flawed assumptions can get us into a world of trouble. So case in point, uh, you're driving out in the highways and byways of Middle Tennessee or up into Kentucky, moving through some of those small towns, and you, you come down, you're going through a town center, and you come up under one underneath one of those railroad bridges, and you see a height marker. And you wonder, why is that there? And you get a little closer, and you see stones that are missing out of the bottom of the bridge or some serious scarring in there. And you know the reason that that height marker was put there was because of somebody's flawed assumptions. Uh, the NFL playoffs have just gotten kicked off this weekend, and uh, no doubt if you're going to tune into those and as the weeks progress, you're going to hear the commentators, the announcers uh, just postulating, just trying to kill time, fill airspace, and they will start talking about uh, so-and-so, this, this player who's now just lauded as like the, the MVP of this team that's, you know, ascending and making their way. Uh, through the, the, uh, the playoffs, as a, their, their history, their history, though, consists of just having been bounced from one team to another team, like a journeyman, and just like never really finding home till now. Why was that? Why, why did no one else recognize their talent? Because of, oftentimes, their flawed assumptions. We're driving around in our cars, and there's that obnoxious light on the dashboard. And you wish you could just, and some of us do, just take black electrical tape and put that over that, that light just to ignore it. Wish it would go away, much to the harm, the degradation of the engine, if not the transmission of the vehicle, thinking how big a deal could this be? Why? Because of our own flawed assumptions. I can just keep going with, with this. We do this in our relationship with God as well. Our flawed assumptions. Let me, here's an example. So we hear from him, if you've studied his word, read his word, really any modest amount at all, you will see and hear again and again and again the theme of the need that we have for, we alluded to it already in the service, one another for community that we would grow. It is every bit as much a means of grace as time in prayer, time in the word, the sacraments, one another fellowship, community, is one of his means of grace that we would grow in maturing as followers of Jesus. We hear that again and again, and yet many of us oftentimes will think ourselves to be some rare golden exception to that, and therein we'll distance ourselves from others and community, thinking that, well, he's speaking of everyone else but me. Why? Because of our own flawed assumptions. And that, will too, will get us into a world of trouble. So I think Megan alluded to this. Somebody did uh, already. We are going to be talking about uh, community over the next couple of weeks as our community groups are getting relaunched here uh, this month. And uh, that's certainly what I want to do, spend some time in that here this morning together. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 9. The very end of Matthew 9, it's going to be on the screen as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, and then we're going to bridge over, so a little bit at the end of chapter 9, and then a little bit into chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. So Matthew 9, verse 35, on into Matthew 10, verse 4. And if you're flipping and flipping and still trying to find it, that's fine. Let me just give you some landmarks. That's the, the Matthew is the first of the four gospels. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Again, we are in Matthew 9.35. going to read just a little bit out of chapter 9 into chapter 10, verse 4. Hear now God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, we do need the Lord's help, so can we go to him now in prayer? Would you join me? Lord, um, thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing thus far this morning, and thank you for uh, the passage passages that we've been able to read already here this morning. Thank you for the time that we have and yet still have here together. Uh, we trust as we prayed at the onset of the service that you would be stirring in this time. We pray that now in particular for this time as we um, are sitting in your, under your word. Not over it, not beside it, but, but under it. Uh, and we ask that you, the, the one who inspired it, the one who has preserved it, the one who has opened up this opportunity for us to be here, would be stirring in our hearts uh, that we would not leave here unchanged, unchallenged, uncomforted that and all so much more we ask now in your name O Jesus amen there are some individuals with whom you should expect the unexpected not because they're capricious I mean, that there is that of course I mean there's some individuals you just don't know what to expect because they're nuts but I'm not, that's not where I'm going right now. With some individuals, you should expect the unexpected simply because of who they are in their grandeur, in their glory, in the wonder of their personhood. And I'm thinking here especially of Jesus. More so than any other, we should expect the unexpected because of who he is. Think with me just for a moment of the titles. I'm just going to give you a list, and not the whole list, but a sampling of the list of the titles of Jesus in the Old and New Testament. Okay? Hang on. I'm going to go fast. The Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Holy One, Lamb of God, Prince of Life, Lord God Almighty, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Root of David, Word of Life, Author and Finisher of our Faith, Advocate the Way, Dayspring, Lord of All, I Am, Son of God, Shepherd and Bishop of Souls, Messiah, the Truth, Savior, Chief Cornerstone, King of Kings, Righteous Judge, Light of the World, Head of the Church, Morning Star, Son of Righteousness, Chief Shepherd, Resurrection and Life, Horn of Salvation, Governor, the Alpha and Omega. That's a sampling of his titles, of the names that we find uh, in the scriptures describing him. That's the names, that's the titles. Haven't even touched on uh, his deeds and his actions. 
all those names and titles do is tell us something of who he is, you know, with a word or two. Haven't even gotten into yet what he has done, is doing, and promises yet to do. You get the idea with somebody described in those ways that perhaps we should expect the unexpected. That is to say, it would be absurd to think that we can pin him down, that we can rein him in. As is said wisely in the land of Narnia, he is good, but he is not safe. He is our king, he is not our consultant. So perhaps we should expect the unexpected. What does that have to do with our text? You may be wondering. Well, Jesus' ways, what we see in our text, are not what we would expect. Jesus' ways are not what we would expect. Now, the implications of that go into everything. Absolutely every arena, every topic that you can think of is going to be impacted by this reality that Jesus is, his ways are not what we expect. But in particular, for our purposes this morning, we're going to go in this direction. Jesus' ways are not what we expect, especially in regards to community, and that should shape our understanding of community. His ways are not what we expect, and that should shape our understanding of community. You see it in three ways. Three ways in particular uh, that, that he surprises us, that he, his ways are unexpected. Three things you can see if you've got the outline in your, your bulletin, you can see where we're going first. And there's some alliteration here. First, in the distress that he feels. Secondly, in the delegation that he makes. And then thirdly, in the diversity that he creates. In all three, these are unexpected and they have implications for community. The distress that he feels, the de delegation that he makes, and the diversity that he creates. So let's look at these in turn, and I will tell you we're going to be building as we go, so to speak. Really wanting to land hard on that third point. So the first thing, however, that said, those for one and two are worth looking at. The distress that he feels. You see this in particular there in verse 36 of chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus has, he, he, he sees and feels this pressing need. He, he, the, the great shepherd of the flock makes an assessment of his flock, and this is how he, this is the assessment, this is the judgment that he comes to. They are harassed. The implication meaning actually they are beaten and bloodied. They are helpless, thrown down upon the ground. They are abandoned. They are defenseless. And so with that assessment of the flock, the heart of the great shepherd is moved deep within. And how does he respond? Well, with a deep response, with compassion, a with-feeling passio uh, towards the flock, and therein it demands, the need demands a response, an urgent response response. And you see that with verses 37 and 38. Because of what he has seen, he calls forth this response in verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the metaphor here is of a harvest, a, a, um, 
a yield that is coming, that he is anticipating, that is going to be beyond imagining. Great, this, 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 uh, this harvest. The meaning, the, the implication being that there are souls that are ready and waiting and longing. So pray, my followers, my dear ones, pray for them. Two metaphors, the flock and the harvest. Jesus brings them together and says the implication, the application of this is to pray. The great need demands that kind of response to pray. Now, you may be wondering at this point, what does this have to do with community groups? What is this? Okay. It's going to require a big step back, but it, it is there, and it is significant. If you take the big step back and just think with me, ask the question. I'm going to presume that some of you are followers of Jesus in this room, so I'm just going to throw the question to you right now. How'd you get there? This morning, you believe the one who spoke these words. You've entrusted yourself to him, the speaker of these words. How'd you get there? Through the fulfillment of these words. That's how you got there. Now, what were the words? Because one after another, after another, after another, over a chain of centuries of God's people have been praying this way, and that's how you got here. The fulfillment of Jesus' very words is recorded for us at the end of chapter 9. Do you see his heart for you even in that moment as he's looking down the corridors of time with you and you and you and you and you and you and me in mind? Such is his passion, such is his desire, such is his love, such is the, the worth that he, oh, he sees you in this way worth living, dying, and rising for and praying for that we would come to know and entrust him. So here's the follow-up to that question. Do you know how you got here? Is that how you see his flock? With such eyes, with such worth, with such value, as worth-loving, as worth-serving, as worth-binding yourself to? Do you see his, your fellow believers, your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in the way that he does? so prized that you would love and serve and bind yourself to them in some practical way. His ways are not ours. His ways, his ways are surprising. His ways are unexpected. He sees even that person that way. Do we? Do you? Do I? This flips our understanding of community. Which takes us to the next point. Not just the distress that Jesus feels, but the delegation that Jesus makes. Verse 1, chapter 10. Following right on, you know, in the original, there were not verses and chapter headings, and goodness gracious, you certainly don't have uh, section headings. But So flowing right from what we just read in chapter 9, moving into the next words. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is the, the astonishing delegation that Jesus is making here. Jesus is not about doing things efficiently. Case in point, every one of us in the room. Um, those of us who are parents, 
striving to bring our children into doing things with us. Jesus is not about doing things efficiently, but all things well, bringing us into the work. So you see authority given to these men, astonishing authority giving to, I don't, uh, it's astonishing that he gives them authority. That's really what I mean here. Not astonishing authority per se, but astonishing that he gives these, this bunch authority. Twelve, twelve, clearly implying a continuity. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve disciples, the idea being that God's purposes and plans are unfolding and there's a continuity to this and it's expressing itself even at this moment as he's calling twelve. Continuity, they're also called to represent him. Um, the idea of being an apostle means to be, to, to be sent, sent ones. It's tapping into Old Testament imagery uh, where servants of God were, were to, to speak and act on behalf of God, on behalf of the one who had sent them. Well, that's us. That's us who have been given such authority and honor. And that takes us to the next thing, this honor that is bestowed on these men having been called in this way. Jesus intends, clearly you can see it here in chapter 9, chapter 10, there's a transition point taking place here in his ministry, an expansion of the work. There's an expansion of the work that is coming at this point. It's not just going to continue, it's going to develop and grow, expand. If there's going to be an expansion of the work, there's going to have to be a growth of the workers, the number of the workers for the work to expand, and that's why they are brought in. But it, 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 again, this is not efficient, but oh, it is amazing. It is beautiful, and the, the honor that's being bestowed upon them and upon us that we would be called to serve in this anyway at all. So if, just keep your thumb there in Matthew. If you want to look at this, they're, they're quick references, so if you just want to write them down, that's fine too. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Verse 9, something of this, it's almost like an aside that Paul says here. Uh, and he, he's speaking of his readers, the church of Corinth, which is a messy bunch, to say the least. And he's speaking of his partners and himself and his partners in ministry. And he's saying us, that's why I'm saying, so all of us is who he's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, for we are God's fellow workers. Now just sit in that for a minute. Thinking of who he's describing, who he's including in that, and saying, we, readers, and us sending this letter to you, we are God's fellow workers. Does he need us? No. Now, it less lets you think I'm reading too much into that, um, or this is just a one-off, then let's go to, to another three, from 1 Corinthians 3 to 1 Thessalonians 3 where the apostle says something very, very similar. Just, I want you to see this so that you can sit in this and consider this of yourself, ourselves. First um, Corinthians chapter three, verse two, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Our brother and God's coworker. God's co-worker. And it's not that, you know, anybody that knew Timothy knew that he didn't float when he walked. And in fact, you read the counsel that Paul gives to Timothy and he's countering the man's timidity and fear of man. 
and, and the counsel that he did, gives implies so much. So, Timothy, a man like us, God's fellow worker. The authority, the point being, that in this delegation, you see this authority that is given, which is astonishing, and this honor that is bestowed that is equally astonishing. And those two, two things tell us something about community. These 12 made up a community, a community of Jesus followers, of disciples. Again, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with our community groups? The, 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 the principle here of authority being delegated and honor being bestowed was not just true to a few of the 12, but all of the 12, and not just expositing going beyond that, not just to a few of us, but to all of us. There is that sense in which authority has been given and honor has been bestowed. Now, I'm not saying that there are, today there are apostles in the sense of the 12, not, not saying that, but nonetheless, the, the, we are ambassadors, ambassadors of the king in this world, representing, sent forth in his name with authority and honor as his fellow laborers, as co-workers. But so here's my question. Is that how you see yourself? Do you understand yourself to be God's fellow worker, his co-worker? Is that how you, do you understand yourself Christian today? That's how he names you, how he sees you. Put it on your resume. I am God's fellow worker. You might be careful who you apply for the job with there, but put it up there. Know it. It is true of you, but it is also true of who else? Your fellow believers. Is that how you see your fellow believers as ambassadors of the king? As representatives sent forth in his name, all of us. Will you go so far, though? Yeah, I don't think any of us would do this in terms of our speech, but in your mind and your thoughts towards that person, will you dismiss someone who has been delegated by the king? Ought we not to rather be considering, what can I learn from them? How can I come alongside them? How can I encourage them? My goodness, how can they encourage me? I need to be up by them, rubbing up shoulders with them, which, of course, requires time. His ways are unexpected, not what we think they're going to be. His means of growing us in our faith are challenging and disruptive, frankly, but that's how community comes. So we see something of this in, in the distress that Jesus feels and the delegation that he makes. But then the third one, we really get into the heart of us, and that is the diversity that Jesus creates. The diversity that he creates. So let me read verses 2 through 4, this listing of the 12 again. Matthew 10, verse 2, the names of, and going on through verse 4, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's so much you could talk about in terms of this listing but I just want to make a few observations and then get, kind of get into the meat of it. So d different backgrounds that are described here worth, worth noting. Uh, the, the stories that are represented behind each of these men 
The order is significant. I think, it's, I think this is right. Every time they're, they're listed, the, the 12 together, Peter's always first and Judas is always last. Um, a few of them we know quite a bit about, but quite a few of them we hardly know anything about, and that's a whole other sermon. Do I feel seen? You know, that sort of thing. Um, the status is, is worth considering here. That is to say, um, the interrelatedness, the connections. You've got two sets of brothers listed among the 12. You've got um, some, we know something about the professions of James and John and, and uh, as fishermen and, and such, and, and, and some inclinations regarding a couple of others, at least, which then takes me to this. Not just the backgrounds, but the, how shall I say, the perspectives how they come into being uh, summoned by Jesus to follow him. In particular, I'm thinking about two of the 12, and they are poles apart. This, one is so deep blue, and the other one is so deep red. I mean, we're talking magnetic poles apart, okay? And they would never, ever, socialize one with another except for Jesus which is instructive you have on the one hand in this corner of the cage fight potentially you have Matthew the tax collector Matthew is sympathetic and supportive of the civil authorities, the Roman government, the occupying army of his homeland. He is a traitor to his people. Matthew, over here, we have Simon the Zealot. Not Simon Peter, Simon down at the bottom, Zealot. Whereas Matthew is all in for the government, both feet, Simon is all in against the government, both feet. A zealot was a party within first century uh, Palestine, Israel. These were um, revolutionaries. These were political agitators, activists, insurrectionists. Given an opportunity, let's put it this way. Simon would have stuck a knife in the back of Matthew given any opportunity he had. And I don't mean that like saying mean things about him. I mean a literal blade. And yet, we find them brought together. And there's only one explanation for it, and it is the one who brought them together. It is Jesus. I think what Stephen read earlier, go back and reread it this afternoon from Ephesians 2, 19, no, was it 11? 11, 11 and following, yeah, 11 and following. The, truly the miracle, it is it's what Paul describes in Ephesians, the whole book of Ephesians, like building for chapters. He keeps talking about the mystery of the gospel. You're like, what the heck is that? And you find out the mystery of the gospel is Jew and Gentile made one. The early church referred to this as a third race. The people of God, miraculously created by the gospel, the power of the gospel. 
This is the only explanation for this fellowship, this community that we're reading of here in Matthew 9 and 10. And the reason is because Jesus delights to bring folks from all over together. All over in every way you can think of, all over together. I'm going to go in a place you don't want me to go. Politics. You may have heard there's a presidential election coming, and it's already gotten nasty, and I don't think it's going to get any better. Let me go in a time capsule back with you, if I may, to 1992, another uh, presidential election before many of you were even born, but um, going in there anyway. This is uh, from a, a book I was reading uh, some weeks ago. It's a story that the author is, is telling here. During the 1992 presidential election, a friend of mine told me about an awkward moment in his Bible study. One of the group members expressed excitement because that Sunday she had seen a bumper sticker promoting the other party in the church's parking lot. She was excited because to her, this was an indication that non-Christians had come to visit. <laughs> oh, it gets better. Imagine the awkwardness when another member of the group chimed in and said, um, that's my bumper sticker. You know that could happen here. It should never happen here. I mean, bring all the bumper stickers you want. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that reaction. That reaction could happen here. I hope it never does, but it could. It could because of the assumptions that we make, the connections that we make in our minds between how someone votes and the state of their soul. Now you tell me how that fits with Matthew 9 and 10, with the fact that Jesus stayed up all night intentionally therein summoning Simon and Matthew together in, as one to follow him. He didn't make a mistake is my point. This wasn't an oversight. Oh, I meant that other Simon. This is all absolutely intentional on, on Jesus' part. Politics have a place. Please don't hear me saying that. Does. Yes, it matters and it has a place, but Jesus puts it in its place. Jesus gives us the perspective that we need on these things. Making us one as with the zealot and the tax collector. Can we not have zealots and tax collectors in this room? Can, ought they not to, in Jesus, embrace one another and call one another brother and sister? According to Jesus, yes. Yes, imagine what a, a testimony that was to the people in Galilee at the time. Right? Consider what they're accustomed to as they're reading, reading the, the, the Capernaum Gazette and they're checking the, 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 the website of the Jerusalem Times and they know all the opinion pieces and they know who, who's what and who, how this person feels. Think of how mind-blowing this was that there's this rabbi walking around and two of his 12 main dudes are from those camps. Think of the testimony, the power of that, the power to the gospel. 
And the, 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 the possibility that others would know then that. But let me go a little further. This diversity that Jesus creates does not, is not just a testimony that others would know. It is also a means by which we would know and that we would know who God is. We need each other that we would know who God is. We need more than just our narrow little bandwidth of silos that we live in, that we would know who God is. Now, you've already had one or two references to C.S. Lewis that I am not responsible for, by the way, this morning. Um, but I'm going to give you one more. This is from uh, his wonderful book, The Four Loves. And what Lewis is, he's writing in the context of, um, one, uh, of speaking of a group of dear friends, and one of them has just passed away, and Lewis is reflecting on that and its impact upon the group, having lost one, okay? This is what he says. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. What is Lewis saying? We can't even know one another by ourselves. We can't even know a finite creature by ourselves. It takes a community, it takes a group to draw out certain aspects of a person. It takes a community just to know one person. How much more so God? Do, do you see? The infinite one? How much more so the infinite God? It takes much more than my perspective, much more than just your perspective. It takes a community that we would even get a glimpse of who he is. I mean, a glimpse of a flicker of a shadow of who he is. It takes a community. And we are so much poorer therein without that. Spiritually, we are so much poorer when we try to, and I, 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 I love you, but I just got to say this. Some of us are poor because you've absented yourself from community. And we are poorer for it. Remember the Coles? It takes all of us to know him and to grow the way he intends us to grow. Do you, again, do you see how this is not what you expected? That's not the way Jesus works. His ways are unexpected, calling us and drawing us into a community that is not maybe what we had in mind. Let me end with this. Some of you may have read something about this. We are in the midst of right now, the United States, not CPC Clarksville. We are in the midst culturally of the largest 
fastest religious shift in American history. Right now, you're living in it, whether you knew it or not. You can see the effects of it all the time. This is something that is affecting directly more people combined that were converted through the first Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, the second Great Awakening through the 1890s up into the 1830s, and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. What is it? You may be wondering. Here's what it is. 40 million Americans right now who not that long ago would have said, I attend a church about once a month, now attend less than once a year. 40 million just in the last few years have made that shift. That's a seismic shift that's going to have consequences beyond. We can spend all afternoon postulating the possibilities of the consequences, the repercussions of that. And we're crazy if we don't think about it. It's called the great de-churching. The great de-churching. You may be wondering what are the causes of this. What would bring about such a seismic shift culturally today? It is partially what some of you are immediately going to. It is a partially what you could call church malpractice. That is to say, abuse of various kinds, racism, misogyny, political syncretism, clergy scandals. It is partially those things, but when you drill into the data, when you look at the surveys, when you examine the statistics, that takes a back seat way in the back of the bus to something much more mundane. We just drift. That's actually the big explanation. It was happening before COVID, COVID exacerbated it, and here's that's where we are, a drifting. And it happens typically through just the most seemingly innocuous decisions, just the most subtle little compromises. We'll say, you know, for the sake of the kids and sports, or for the sake of my career, or for the sake of, you know, this, 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 a gazillion different possibilities to fill in the blank, just for a season, we'll stop going, but we'll come back. 40 million aren't. And climbing. I was reading an editorial in Christianity Today this past week by a, a lady by the name of Maria Staub, and she's one of the editors of Christianity Today, and she's talking about how she herself is struggling, has been struggling to connect with her fellow believers since she moved to a new town, and, and struggling with uh, doing battle internally with the, the lies, our culture's lies of self-sufficiency. And uh, the pain, in all of that, the pain of loneliness that, that she feels. And yet at the same time, the stubborn resolve of hers to push through all that and to try and connect nonetheless. And then her great delight, this is how the article ends, her great delight and her joy in the discovery one Sunday 
where she was surrounded by a few less strangers than the week before, and the week before that, and the week before that. Why? Because she was getting in there and not giving in to the pull of dechurching. And that was God's gift to her. That's her testimony. Um, Jesus' ways, again, are unexpected and sometimes shockingly surprising. Part of that is his intentions for each and all of us when it comes to community. It does require intentionality as anything good does. end with that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Lord. Please have mercy. Would you help us to not try to pin you down or rein you in? Would you help us to be surprised, to be humble enough to position ourselves in a place that you would strike us and move. We would hear you say the unexpected things starting with you delight in me you delight in him you delight in her you delight in us you delight in them that we need you that we need one another Jesus would you please help us to go beyond pondering these things we certainly have to start there I suppose but Oh, would you help us not to stop with the pondering, but actually pursue? And we ask that you would bless, bless the CPC Community Group Reboot as we are getting started again here this winter, moving into the spring. Bless the leaders, the hosts, the groups as they come together, wherever they're meeting, whenever they're meeting, would you help us to know you better through our time together with one another? And we pray in your name. Amen.